I'm Lindsay and you've stepped into Heroin City, a podcast dedicated to women in all their glorious varied shapes and forms throughout history. Thus far, we've discussed Bess of Hardwick and Pamela Coleman-Smith, two women from different eras who were fascinating pioneers in their time. Today's episode takes a slightly different tack. Our third podcast subject is Boudicca. Controversial as a warrior who waged war and problematic as a feminist icon, though lauded as both, we will discuss her story and the many variations that have been written and harnessed by others over the centuries. As our guest, Dr Emma Southern says... History is sexy and sometimes fun and sometimes hilarious. It's also challenging and controversial and subjective. And on our mission here at Heroin City to bring women's narratives to the fore, we need to discuss the problematic heroines as much as those with seemingly straightforward stories, because all of them are inevitably complex and multifaceted, which is where the good stuff lies. A trigger warning for you all, this podcast inevitably contains a discussion of violence. So if that's not something you want to hear, please check out our previous two episodes and we'll see you next time. Welcome to Heroin City Podcast. My name is Lindsay and today we will be talking about Boudicca, the rebellious woman who stood up against Rome and its empire in 60 AD. We have with us on the podcast today Dr Emma Southern. She holds a PhD in ancient history from the University of Birmingham. The author of Marriage, Sex and Death, The Family and the Fall of Rome, Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, Whore, and The Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. She also co-hosts a history comedy podcast with writer Janina Mathewson called History is Sexy. We are very, very excited to have Dr. Emma Southern in the studio today. Well, she's not in the studio, actually. She's over in Belfast, and we're in London. Thank you for being on our podcast, Emma. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm happy to virtually be here. So we should crack on, I think, because there's some very juicy stuff that we're going to talk to you about. And obviously, the the centre of attention today is Boudicca. Of course, she is often the centre of attention. She's someone that I think a lot of people know, know the name, even if they don't know fully the story. But there's a couple of things that I wanted to focus on, which was sort of her legacy and how she's been used throughout history by other people as a symbol. So what we would, thought we could start with was a nutshell introduction yeah. to Boudicca. Hit it. Okay, so Boudicca is um, a queen of the Iceni tribe in uh, Britain, in Roman Britain. She appears in history all of a sudden in 60 CE when her husband, who is called Prasitergus, which is obviously not his real name because that is a Latin name, dies and she becomes queen. And then something happens. There's the Tacitus version of what happens and then there's what actually happened. And those two things have nothing in common. Uh, <laughs> the story that Tacitus tells is that Prasitergus died. He's a client king of the Romans. This is 20 years, less than 20 years after the invasion of Britain. So most of the people that we're talking about were probably born before Britain was invaded. And this is still very much in the time when Britain is being colonised and people are still resisting the Romans. The story that Tacitus tells is that Prasitergus dies and he leaves half of his kingdom to Nero, who is the current emperor, to the Romans in the hope that this will be a 
enough of a gift to Nero that he and the Romans won't try to take over the entire territory. So they will take half the territory and then they will leave the rest of it to Boudicca and her daughters. And they will be able to live their Iceni life you know, doing, they were bronze workers, they were metal workers, they are in East Anglia, they did a lot of fishing, they were living a happy life before the Romans came. The way Tacitus tells it is that the Romans did not accept this, and they instead marched in and took the entire territory, beat Boudicca for resisting them, and publicly flogged her, which is something that is associated with slaves, and what you do to enslaved people, not to free people, and then raped her daughters and took all of her power and basically destroyed the territory as a, an independent territory. What actually happened is Prasitagus dies, and at about the same time, the Romans called in a load of debts. So when the Romans appeared in a new territory, what they would do is private citizens from Rome, very, very rich people, would turn up, as moneylenders and say, you're now going to have to build a load of temples to the emperor. You're going to have to build a load of um, stuff for the Romans to deal with. You're going to have to pay a load of taxes that you weren't paying before and tribute and, you know, life is going to be expensive for you. Would you like to borrow a million sesterces at a 5% rate of interest? <laughs> Uh, and the colonised people, 90%, say yes, because they don't have any way of paying for anything either. Um, Seneca, the Stoic philosopher Seneca, is one of the major lenders at this time. And all of a sudden, he calls in his debt that the Iceni owe, um, putting them in a massive financial straits. And that is probably what actually kicks off the rebellion, rather than any kind of very dramatic rape. But that's kind of forgotten and is not important because what's important in her legacy is this image of her being bodily flogged, stripped, sexually humiliated, her daughters being assaulted, like this very gendered violence against her specifically as a woman, which leads her to rise up and start travelling around tribes in the area and gathering an army to fight against Roman colonisation, to fight against these imperialist bastards who have come to destroy their good British way of life. At the same time, Druidic religion is being deliberately stamped out in Wales. And that is what the governor of Britain is doing, the Roman governor Suetonius, is at the time murdering Druids in Anglesey. So because he and his army are distracted fighting over in Wales, Boudicca is able to lead a very successful fight first against Colchester, which she burns to the ground because there's only about 40 Roman soldiers there. And for some reason, they don't have any arms. So they hide in a temple and she destroys Colchester, which is the centre of Roman power in the area at the time. Like, Londinium is not the space that it becomes. Colchester is the space and it has this big temple to Claudius, allegedly divine Claudius. Um, and so she burns that down. And then she just keeps going. She goes down to London. She burns it to the ground. She takes out St Albans, burns it to the ground. This whole kind of area of Essex and London. She keeps destroying they send a legion to fight her and in a miracle um she overwhelms a roman legion and destroys it and takes out cavalry and that is the point at which this stops being something that the romans can ignore if she had just burnt londinium and colchester they probably we would never know about it but she destroys a legion and a legion hasn't been destroyed for almost 100 years <laughs> since 
Ferris lost three. Yeah, it's been about 60 years since the Roman Legion has been destroyed. And the British destroying a, a <laughs> Roman Legion led by a woman is just like so mind-blowing yeah (laughs) like they just cannot really wrap their heads around how this has happened so then Suetonius has to send in proper troops then it becomes something that enters the history books and this is where she kind of falls apart because she has been able to lead these armies through pure rage and strength of numbers basically but as she is lured into a battle in the location of which has been posited a great many times in the Battle of Waring Street. But Suetonius uses kind of strategy um, and lures her into a battle where she has to come in and can be surrounded on three sides, essentially. And she has no way of escaping. There's like forest on three sides. She has to enter the field of battle from one direction and the Romans can surround them. And then once the... There's no way of withdrawing because there's an army behind her. <laughs> uh, she's uh, pulling back into her own army, at which point she is massacred. The various tales of how she actually dies, Dio thinks that she dies on the battlefield. Other people think that she manages to survive, that she just lives her life. But in Tacitus, she withdraws and takes her own life, which is... Now, in kind of modern parlance, is not necessarily seen in the same way as it is in Roman way. In the Roman sense, this is seen as very brave and very stoic and um, a very honourable way to take your own life rather than to live in ignominy, basically. She's a kind of a, a heroine in Tacitus to a certain extent in that she is very brave. She will not take anything lying down. I have a a theory that she is his Lucretia, basically, (laughs) Um, in that she suffers an indignity that is tyrannical and she does not accept this as something that she will just live with. She does not accept this as something that has to be dealt with as part of living under the Romans. She says, no, I will fight this tyranny, I will fight this colonisation, I will fight this imperialism, and I will not be a slave to a tyrannical empire. And then she kills herself, like Lucretia does. So he kind of loves her, except that she can't be perfect because she's still a woman. So he still has her doing all of these terrible things, like, like burning an entire city to the ground, but also she does all these things like cutting the breasts off of Roman women and then tying them, sewing them to their mouths, which is bananas <laughs> yeah but uh, but yeah so the the basic story that is clearly true because we have the archaeological evidence for it is that Boudicca existed she was a queen and there are other British queens so it's perfectly fine for that she was a British queen who led an army um who led an army managed to be wildly successful and was eventually crushed by the imperialist machine brilliant so I was actually going to go back to what was true and what wasn't. So that's because when we talk about why Tacitus made yeah, certain yeah. aspects, which you've obviously touched on there, totally fascinating. So the fact that even without that kind of trigger moment of, of the assault and the humiliation that Tacitus put in to the narrative, yeah. even without that, that's fascinating. She still did those things. We know that she, yeah. you know, we had that layer of black earth in dark earth in London and St. Albans in Colchester. But in that case, if she didn't have that trigger moment, how did she rise to the to be the leader of the rebellion? Was it that women were just warriors anyway? You know, you tell us about that. So we only have the name of two British women from the period 
that they might have lived before the Romans came. But both of them are queens. Cartamandua is the other one who is up in Yorkshire, and she is um, a very loyal client queen. She is the exact opposite of Boudicca in that she collaborates with the Romans a lot, and they do a lot to keep her in her position. But it seems that the British culture before the Romans came, it just didn't have a problem with the idea of queens and the idea that a woman could rule a territory and that a woman could um, could lead an army. The Romans have a very, very gendered perspective on where it is appropriate for men and women to be, and war and politics are absolutely male spaces, and it is considered to be actively disgusting for women to be in those spaces. Um, but that's a very Roman thing and it is not something that people outside of Rome, like when you look at a lot of women who fought, like a lot of places that fought Rome, they have female leaders who are perfectly happily living their lives and then the Romans come and say we don't we don't like women in power. <laughs> Do you know what? That's another of my questions. So, so they trained the same as men. They did all yeah. pretty much the same thing. They don't have this political divide, yeah, that women can't be leaders, essentially. So everything we have that's written about what are now called the Celts or the Germans, um, who get kind of lumped into them, are all written by Romans. So Caesar and Tacitus are the big ones. And they have very bizarre ethnographic ideas of how to write about non-Roman people, which are, if you've ever read 17th, 18th, 19th century writings about British people going into Africa, it's very similar. Like they write about non-Romans as if they are fauna. Uh, rather than people. Um, uh, but from that, we have that women were not fighting necessarily. So you don't have like armies of women. There is this, if you're going into war with uh, the British people, then it's going to be 90% the men fighting, but that not necessarily, they're not going to refuse to fight for a female leader, whereas the Romans definitely would. Uh. <laughs> um, and obviously that's a, there's a direct line then into um, someone like Elizabeth I or Queen Victoria yeah. uh, using her as a symbol, which we will get to, but just on the same point before we move on, I've always wanted, and I know it's it's not, it's a thought experiment, and then, you know, <laughs> and they're just for fun, kids, but um, I've always wondered what the world would look like had Boudicca won, or at least <laughs> our world in this, on this aisle. Can we go down that path and think, well, had I mean, she sure. managed to do it? If she had managed to somehow kick the Romans out, which would be impressive because the Romans embedded real fast. Uh, <laughs> Let's just imagine. Come on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then we have a world in which Britain is completely isolated from mainland Europe from much earlier um, and is much less a part of mainland European culture because when Britain is part of the empire then it is trading happily with the Romans. People are moving backwards and forwards between Britain and mainland Europe and across the empire. And you have this very diverse world in Britain. And, you know, the archaeology shows we have, you know, people from China who end up in Britain because they travel down silk roads across the empire. We have people from Britain who end up in the other direction. And we, you probably end up with a situation which is much more like Ireland, where Ireland is isolated from mainland Europe and develops its own culture, its own language, which is much more embedded in the modern day. Obviously, it eventually gets 
crushed by British imperialism. Mm, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah um, but it has a unique culture and a unique language, which lasts a lot longer than most others do in the rest of Europe, because everyone else ends up speaking Latin or some version of Latin. So I suspect that what you would end up with is a Britain that is a lot less connected to Europe. And then when you get into like the early modern period or like medieval period, when you have you know, princesses and princes going backwards and forwards and dukes and Britain owning bits of France and all of that, you probably have much less of that because mm. they would not have those connections, that kind of ideological connection that they that Britain has or England has with mainland Europe of considering Normandy and Brittany to be perfectly reasonably part of England, <laughs> which we now forget, but, you know, was a really important part of English history, is that England can extend into France. So I said you'd have much less of that, I think, and much less of a relationship with mainland Europe and would be a much more isolated in the Irish sense. I love that you've just gone with the, what we would be lacking. And I'm, like, I'm, I'm yeah. expecting it to be, and <laughs> women would be, they wouldn't be oppressed <laughs> and it would be this, and then we'd have tribes and then they, and they would all talk and it would, you know, obviously you learned it as a kid at school, but Romans <laughs> brought quite a few good things yeah. in the sense that we moved on infrastructure-wise and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it just illustrates, obviously, I mean, this is this is why you don't do the thought experiment, because one way or another, <laughs> things end up that way in the end, because people are people. But I just always like the idea that the women were able to, to still keep ruling and you know, there was a different <laughs> way of doing things. That's what I want to know. But you're right, you know, the trade routes in London became the melting pot that it is today yeah. because of all of that. So... There are good, there's good and bad in everything, right? There is. And prior to the Romans coming, there is this desire to see it as some kind of like feminist paradise. I once got an email from someone shouting at me about my You're Dead to Me episode because I did not portray pre-Roman Britain as a feminist paradise. And I was like, just because one or two women can be the queen doesn't mean... <laughs> And that everyone else is having a great time. You know, it happened again. Like you know, Tudor times were it's all women. You know, and yeah, in exactly. Free, in War of the Roses, it was it's all women. But what's happening? It's not a paradise. It, it's women having to manoeuvre in that situation in a patriarchal society. Yeah, you know. And also, Britain, England, particularly, is constantly just tribes fighting one another for territory. The reason that Caesar comes over the first time that Britain is invaded is because an English like prince, like tribal leader, is ejected by his father from the tribe that he's living in in Kent because he's just a bit of a dick. So he he is ejected from his kingdom, like exiled. So he goes to France, where Caesar is at the time, and says, look, if you come over and make me king of my tribe, then I will tell you how to beat the English, basically. Um, and that is why Caesar turns up in England in 44 BC, because he's basically encouraged to do it by this exiled prince. <laughs> you see, it's all going um, on one, one way or another. Yeah, and um, uh, and there's all kinds of things with people, you know, people love the look of the Romans. For every Boudicca, there is a Cartamandua. There's a guy called Caraticus under Claudius, who is this he doesn't get enough credit, really, probably because his story is just not as interesting. But he's like this guerrilla leader. He leads this guerrilla war against the Romans for like a decade from through the 40s and the 50s. He leads this war against Claudius's forces and really causes trouble for them throughout like 
going through East Anglia and all the way up through into Wales. And he is eventually beaten in a battle and he flees up to the Brigantes, which is Cartamandua in the north. And he tries to take refuge there because they're like the biggest tribe. And Cartamandua invites them in and goes, yeah, 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 come on in, we'll, we'll hide you. And then immediately like rings the Romans and goes, I've got Karatikas here if you want to. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so um, interesting. And they go, thank you very much. And they reward her very richly with She's it. She's a lovely mm-hmm. time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, for every Boudicca who is fighting against the Romans, there is a Cartamandua who is saying, you seem fun. Do you want to be my friend? <laughs> and so, so that gets back to if, if that moment, that trigger moment didn't happen, it's really down to finances. It's the fact that she's just like, no, this isn't right. And I mean, I've yeah. had enough of you asking for money and lending money and putting us into this position. That's basically. But she obviously, Boudicca obviously felt like she could do it. I oh mean, yeah, for sure. She and she does, right? And she has this position. She has enough kind of reputation, obviously, within the island that uh, when she does say enough is enough, and it also doesn't make a huge amount of sense that two girls are raped and one woman is flogged and that the entire half the island is like oh my god (laughs) Um, although it's nice to think that an entire island would be like this is too much about a rape honestly is not that believable but if it is a bunch of people are suddenly plunged into dire financial straits then everybody has an investment in this idea of kicking out the romans or at least teaching them a lesson but she is the person who is able to say look this isn't enough she has enough of a reputation that other people People will follow her and other tribes will join in and say yeah you seem like someone we can believe in and get behind and we believe in both the cause and in you as someone who can get this done absolutely that's the key and i think that regardless of the way tacitus tied it up for his own reasons it still is incredibly impressive almost more impressive in some ways you know? i think so yeah you know, i think it makes her because if you reduce it basically to her body that her body is violated and then she can't that's what she can't take then I think that is kind of a a reduction of what she's really standing for which is a a, uh, she's against the whole system this whole system where people come in lend you loads of money and then say oh by the way you are a slave of money and it's not a personal yeah it's it's the principle of that and so she's Um, like no I'm, I'm doing this for everyone yeah and the whole system is um you know, is a problem for the whole island. It's not just me and my personal royal situation. Um, it is, you know, I. Uh, this is a wider political issue in which I am engaged. Yeah, brilliant. I have a question on the sources then. So obviously we hear about Tacitus, we hear about Dio, talk about what his sort of motives were, but where are the sources that in this situation where you're, you know, basically putting a piece of the puzzle together? You're having to pick it together. So the financial stuff, we know largely from Seneca himself um, and from the financial records um, and his letters and stuff like that. The archaeology is by far the most useful because you can really see both what was destroyed and what was existing at the time. So, you know, what what is in that black layer of how much Roman infrastructure there is and what they're actually fighting against. Um, the two narrative sources which are the ones that tell the story that makes Boudicca who she is tell a really neat story but in order to piece together the kind of quote-unquote as much of what we can tell what really happened is scattered across like little references 
here and there, basically, in a letter here of Seneca or in a little note in another bit of Tacitus. <laughs> so they're much harder to sell as a story, basically, to be like, and if you put this together and this together and this together and this together, and then you look at the archaeology, then you can see. <laughs> right. Uh, whereas if you tell a story that has a... Uh, Dio's Boudicca has this big speech which is really cool and then he has her he's really descriptive his Boudicca is actively misogynist in that she is he describes her as a giant woman with like man hands uh, <laughs> and basically talks about how unattractive she is because she is very manly and you're like okay um but she does this big speech that he gives her. It goes on for paragraphs of this, and that is much more evocative. But would you like to look at this financial record? <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, I guess what you're really doing is going, yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah, that didn't happen. But yeah. rather than going, but this is what did happen, and I know everything, and, you know, it's more a case of, well, that doesn't make sense. But that's okay, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's okay. I am very much of the belief as a historian that what actually happened is, interesting but what people said happened is perhaps more interesting and that if this is you know they're not the romans themselves aren't telling the story of and then we here is some financial record <laughs> uh, and then there was a financial issue in which people were really cross about the debt um <laughs> yeah uh, they're telling the story of this great woman who was able to fight the romans and that is almost more interesting that that's the story they told themselves. So, and getting onto a tall woman with a great speech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Elizabeth the first use of Boudicca. I mean, it seems obvious. Obviously, she was well educated, so she would have been up on her ancient uh, history. And I mean, it seems obvious that she picked her out with the with the kind of uh, the old uh, red hair and all these other things that yeah. were discussed, whether it was true or not. So using her was a very clever move, I think, and obviously she felt a certain affinity towards her, I would have thought. Yeah, this is a point. So it's a really, it's convenient timing, really, because this is the time when people are starting to scour monasteries for ancient texts. So Tacitus is rediscovered just before Elizabeth becomes the... Uh, Empress um, and the first trans Empress Queen. Um, and, uh, gone too Roman. I'm sure it um, was one of her titles because she had many. Yeah, she did have a lot. Um, so Tacitus is rediscovered and is translated into English or uh, given its first translation during the reign of Elizabeth. And so it's really obvious to everybody who's reading this translation that there is this English woman in the middle of it who is um, a great a great warrior queen with red flowing hair who gives great speeches. And so it starts off as people flattering her <laughs> um, and like drawing very poetic parallels. So they start writing poems basically and drawing these parallels between them. But I mean, why would you not think that that was a great compliment and lean into it as hard as you can? Because, you know, it must have looked when the people first started reading Tacitus and coming across these things, and it, she has about 17 different names during this time. She's called, like, Voadica and Vodica and Voda um, and Vodicea, which is the one that was stitched. was still called when I was... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, all of these... So people were not particularly... Spelling was something that in the early modern period was variable. <laughs> Nobody was that... Nobody cared that much about spelling. 
but you know if it must have seemed like she was being prophesized almost mm. like here is this amazing queen and here is our amazing queen and this is the point at which British expansionism is starting across the world and British imperialism is really kicking off and so this queen standing saying British rights for British people <laughs> must have seemed like the most perfectly timed gift from God to come from the past. Absolutely. The symbolism, Elizabeth I was very good at the old marketing PR, mm -hmm. it's all there. And But also it was interesting because at that point, like you say, it was the beginning of what then became the British Empire. But at that time we weren't that powerful. It's one of those no. myths that were starting to be built up around Elizabeth I and you know maybe after that we started to grow into the power that we became but at the time we were this little island. Yeah the little plucky underdog against the Spanish and the French who were the great powers at the time yeah. um, and so this like and you know the Spanish Armada trying to come and invade Britain the little plucky British underdog fighting off the great evil powers of the continent is a, yeah. a very attractive image. Yeah, and like you say, the courtly love element where people were writing poetry about it using the symbolism in mm -hmm. a poetic way. We find that fascinating because, you know, Tacitus used the story for his own agenda and Dio and then yeah. again Elizabeth I. The next one would be, in my namesake, Victoria, because obviously Pudica yeah. stands for, it means victorious, am I right? It does, a victory, yes, in various coastal languages. Although, as I say, she's got about 30 different names. So, <laughs> <laughs> And that may not um, be her real name. That's the other yeah. thing. It's just a, a name that people have given her because of what she did. Yeah, the only, the only thing we know about her is from Latin sources, and I wouldn't trust them with naming anyone other than themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Any <Anyway. laughs> Yeah, they give everybody a name. It's interesting that she doesn't have a really Latinized name. Like her husband is called Prasitergius, which has obviously been Latinized. Cartamandua is Latinized, but she isn't really given a name that would make her palatable to a Latin or reading audience. She's always kept as a barbarian. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, but Victoria, again, we're then at the height of the British Empire. And this is a point where she changes, which is really interesting because she stands for anti-imperialism, basically. That's the yeah. point of her, is that um, she's the plucky underdog trying to fight off the evil empire. She is Luke Skywalker, not, <laughs> um, not the evil emperor. But now Victoria is the empress. She's the empress of India. She's ruling the empire where the sun never sets. But... It's such a useful and vague heroine that you can... This is where she becomes the archetypal, like, British heroine. And you get that statue, the famous one of her on her cart, with the, like, kind of rearing of the hair flowing. She's, like, the most opposite of how you imagine Queen Victoria. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah, free. Fighting, yeah, like yeah, hair in the wind. Flowing hair in a warrior state. Like you imagine Victoria is the most buttoned up, hair up, tight lipped. But she is a representation of Britain as a freedom and as a military power. And at the same time that that is happening, you get Lord Tennyson, who is the poet laureate under Victoria. And he writes this poem about Boudicca, which has Boudicca fighting 
and freeing herself from the shackles. And again, all of these imagery of freedom and warrior and Britain as this state which brings freedom, basically. Righteousness, isn't it? Like with (laughs) white on her side, she's the one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that statue's still there today. So because there's a direct line as well, because obviously Elizabeth I was also someone that Victoria looked back to. So it's kind of a line through, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a direct line Mm. through all of the... You kind of just have to skip over the Marys because no one likes to remember <laughs> the Marys. It's just a massive PR stunt for the for the kind of old, you know, it's just, that's what it is. It's it's all about, yeah, yeah, we'll take that part of, you know, yeah. what, what she did and she and Gloriana and this, that and the other. And we'll forget that, you know, my teeth were falling out and her hair was this, but that's fine. And then we'll do that that's... and then we'll use Boudicca and we'll just, yeah. make, you know, it's how it is, isn't it? This is how history making works, which is that you take the things which are important for the time that you are in and you write off the parts which are not useful for the story that you're telling right now. And there's parts of her fighting the evil Romans are not useful, really, once you get into the imperial, British imperial era. Like, the evil Romans stop being a part of the story and it starts being a story just about Boudicca fighting something mysterious. Uh, and we won't really talk about Watcher as fighting that much but and then like that statue has her and her daughters Mm. which is very much highlighting this idea that it was an assault against her as an individual which causes the whole war rather than a systematic issue with the empire (laughs) i guess you also get a nod to royal family as well at that point don't you yeah okay and it, it, this is the point where she starts becoming kind of individualised and removed from this whole idea of fighting an anti-imperial war, but is in fact fighting for her family, for her children, for her honour, which is all very post-industrial Victorian. Exactly. Yeah, and do you think at that time that she erected this statue, do you think Victorian people were a fay with her story? You know, you said that there was a resurgence of the classics in Elizabeth's time, but do you think Victoria brought that back, or was that happening again? That's happening again. I mean, this is the point at which everything is very classical. Like, if you walk around London, then you're going to see the British Museum, you're going to see all of those churches that are built in the classical, neoclassical style. You have all of those lads walking around Europe, just knocking lumps off of... <laughs> knocking lumps off of buildings and taking them home. During or their grand the tour. Like, exactly. Look what I got, Mum. <laughs> I've brought home. I don't know if you've ever been to the John Sowell Museum, which is a brilliant museum, but it's just his house, just um, in Bloomsbury, uh, and he designed the Houses of Parliament. He's kind of one of these great Victorian men, but he literally just spent his spare time walking around Europe, just with a hammer, knocking lumps off of things and taking them home. And so his house is absolutely covered in just lumps of incredibly ancient cornicing <laughs> and bits of building that he thought were pretty that he just took home. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. It reminds me of the, um, I lived in LA for a bit in Hollywood, it reminds me of the Hollywood Heritage Museum, which has, I was so disappointed being a complete film buff. I got there and it was literally just corners and bits of things, <laughs> of buildings that used to exist. And I'm like, no. Guys, if no one think to, to to stop, and it's it's all gone. But you've got we just saved a bit, yeah, yeah. Little bit of the, a the old ambassador, um, you know, to hotel, and, and I'm like, oh god, this makes me want to cry. Yeah, so classicism is a huge part of Victorian culture and Georgian culture, like going around and trying to make London look like Rome and harking specifically back to that Roman Empire. And the story that's told about the Roman Empire during that time is that it's a civilising force coming and saving barbarians from themselves, which is what's so interesting to me about Boudicca and how she's used in 
British history from that point onwards, which is that the story that is told constantly is the British Empire is just like the Roman Empire. We come in, we save them from themselves. All these people around the world are eating their relatives and not wearing clothes and not being proper Christians. And we're turning up and making all better for them, which is exactly how the Romans talked about themselves. And, and they're building, classicizing buildings. They are doing neoclassical paintings and casting themselves as a new Seneca or whatever. But they've also got in the middle of this, the one British hero that they've got is Boudicca, who is specifically fighting against the Romans and who stands for everything which the British Empire stands for. And so they just kind do manipulate her image into something which is not anti-imperialist at all but is actually very much for british warrior greatness yeah. Uh, <laughs> righteousness yeah so what you're saying is buddha is actually gandhi yeah <laughs> uh, a very subdued from the non-violence thing yeah. because she's quite into the violence thing <laughs> yeah she is a violent gandhi no that doesn't really work does it um so we've touched on the timeline of her and the uses of her where would you say we're at with buddha now i mean you mentioned people wanting her so desperately to be this feminist icon and that's massively flawed and I think most of us know why <laughs> yeah um what do you think we can take from her and her legacy and what she stood for well I mean I I come from like my own specific political background which is that individualizing people and making them into like this is this person is a great hero and she did a thing or this person is a great hero and they did this thing because they specifically are a great hero um means that it makes it harder for you to imagine yourself doing great things I think because I'm not a great person I'm just a strange woman in Belfast with a cat like in sweatpants um <laughs> we think you're great <laughs> thank you um but she is when you look at what she actually is she is part of a community who come together to rise up and who are working together to attempt to fight imperialism um and taking her out of that and, and making her story into something which is just she was beaten so she tried to fight the romans with her flowing hair and blah, blah, blah. making her kind of that individualized makes her less useful as something that you can actually try to emulate uh, makes her <laughs> a superhero rather than exactly. just a woman in a position that said no yeah and who then gathered together like a huge group of other people men and women to come together under her banner and I think that it's more inspiring to me to see her that way as a, a woman who was faced with an impossible situation or a political situation and who then did some good diplomacy to get all of those groups together because they spend most of their time just trying to wipe each other out and take territory back and forth in Norfolk but she brings them together under a specific anti-imperialist banner. And it's more fun for me to see her as a kind of Gandhi, as a kind of person who is fighting a homogenizing empire, which is attempting to wipe out their culture, than an individual person fighting for herself. I get criticised for this sometimes with people who like the Romans too much, but I love the Romans. I will study them forever, but they're the bad guy <laughs> in this story and and you know at the end of the day you can't you know talk about post-colonial britain and not see it's the same thing so yeah what i like is a rounded view on it and that is that you can talk about the infrastructure that they brought in the trade yeah. and all these positives that then led to this this this, and this but they were always there was always a downside there's always a downside, and that downside is that they homogenize Britain into another outpost of the empire where you can see the same um, 
the same entertainment in London as you can in Tunisia, as you can in Syria, in Egypt and France, and like it homogenizes the uh, the whole area and all of those local cultures are basically wiped out and you know that and a lot of the people that plenty of the people that the Romans turned up on their doorstep were like you seem good come on in Um, so a lot of people um, are terrorized into giving up their kingdoms voluntarily lest they are destroyed in the way that the Romans destroy things but a lot of them like the whole of France is basically genocided into submission and um, Caesar boasts that he slaughtered a million people and enslaved a million more uh, and when the romans turn up you know 50 percent. if you fight them 50 percent of your population ends up either dead or enslaved and working in a mine somewhere and they are definitely for most people who experience them the first time you experience the romans they're not the good guys 100 years down the line people are more into them like when you're born into the empire and you live with the empire and you experience the benefits of Pax Romana and international trade and you're like yeah this is great but the first time that the Romans show up people are rarely delighted because it means that their way of life their culture their families their bodies are going to be destroyed by the imperial machine absolutely and my mum illustrated it it's always mum that illustrates it well I think, you know when you you get asked if you could go anywhere you had a time machine go anywhere in the world at any given point where are you going to go and I always said I was like, there's so many places but it'd be fascinating to just plop into the Colosseum just for a second soak up <laughs> the atmosphere in the middle of you know the games and then and mum's like you don't want to do that or at least you don't want to be a woman and do that you know, and, or you don't want to be there and she had this long list of why you wouldn't want to do that and I was like oh yeah yeah well maybe I'm just the top top person but even that's got problems yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's true it's it's like it's all about pecking order isn't it and it's like most people yeah. did not have a good time most people did not have a good time in general I mean most people don't have a good time in general <laughs> anytime but um but yeah certainly particularly at this moment like Boudicca, we don't know how old she was. She could have been anything between 17 and 60. But probably she is old enough to have been born before the Romans came. And certainly her parents were born and grew up in a pre-Roman Mycenae world where they were the top dog and where their way of life was the general way of life. And the Romans suddenly turning up with a massive army, wiping out their religion, wiping out their temples and building a temple to some guy called Claudius on top of it is you know nobody wants to be in a position where their way of life is changing that dramatically and that violently and that forcibly um and so that is the the perspective that she has like it doesn't matter if they're bringing international trade in the Pax Romana they're taking away <laughs> now this is the benefit of hindsight perspective of thousands of years I mean that's yeah. the difference there yeah, it's interesting because we've got some light-hearted questions, but actually, okay. yeah, we've just discussed that we don't want her to be a superhero. We want her to be an ordinary <laughs> woman, and people understand that she was a special woman in that she was an ordinary woman who said no, who, who yeah. had charisma, was able to rally, had some sort of position, yeah. and was able to, to call on it. I think that's way more important. But mm-hmm. if she did have a superpower sort of um, ability, what would it be? I'm going to say she probably had loads of charisma because she did manage to, like, she did manage to unite a lot of people. Like, that, tens of thousands of people were united behind her. Um, and this is in a, 
a country which isn't a country this is in a space where they are like she's uniting enemies together to fight together rather than against one another and to put aside their grudges and their historical animosities and come together under something that is um universal so i'm going to say that her superpower would be unbelievable powers of persuasion Brilliant. Sure is. Make me think of Game of Thrones here as well, which is fine. But then again, problematic women. But that's okay. That's okay. Problematic women. No one's a saint, are they? Mm. No, exactly. And that's what we're here to do, to talk about women as multifaceted people, not as necessarily symbols and emblems of whatever people have decided to use. Exactly. And something outside of that kind of Madonna whore, like you're either a saint or you're a sinner. And what you get so often with stories of women in, in history is either they are the greatest saint who ever existed they are perfect in every way and you cannot cast any doubt upon their reputation or they are the greatest evil who mm. ever lived yeah, and they committed every possible evil and you can be like okay well maybe she was good at this but maybe she was also a bit of a dick and like, sometimes she was pissed off and sometimes yeah. she was all right but i mean it just makes me think of diana and princess diana and the way she was yeah exactly. like, we do it all the time and is, is it do you think it's because we we hold on to narratives we like narratives and they make us feel everyone better. likes a story yeah. yeah and it's easy and it's um it's you know it there's having room for complexity takes effort takes mental effort and there's no time to be putting that much mental effort into every single person in the world so it's easier to have a story <laughs> however i do think it's coming from a tv background myself i do see that that, that we are currently uh, in a, a world where we want nuanced uh, yeah. characters in in what we watch and read which is nice it's, it feels like there's an evolution there where we understand that anything two-dimensional we just don't we don't you know yeah like, and i think game of thrones is a good illustration of that they were always multifaceted complex characters who you loved that would then do awful things do i still love them i, I, I don't know i'm confused but it's okay yeah. you know it's okay to be that's how people are yeah, yeah. and i like that yeah, me too. So I think I think we are in a world that, that wants that now. On that note, you're writing a book about 21 women of ancient Rome. Yeah. Who, I mean, you can touch on maybe some of the other characters that we should know about. You mentioned um, the Yorkshire Queen. Yes, yeah, so Cartarandura is in there. She's in Roman history way more than Boudicca is. Boudicca is mentioned once. She's got three mentions and two of those by the same book. But Cartamandra pops up over and over again because she is a really important part of the Roman strategy in Britain and how they're going to maintain their power and so we know loads about her and she collaborated with the Romans a lot and they helped her out to maintain her position in Rome so she would occasionally send to them and say this guy's trying to overthrow me and they'd say all right we'll send you <laughs> we'll send you a cohort <laughs> um she is and playing the system she does. She really does play the system and is um, manages to, you know, have a very long and successful and semi-independent um, life as a queen of a space which stays out of overt Roman power. Because as long as she's collaborating with them, they're happy to let her be in charge. Is it? I'm not big on my uh, Roman history, but it, did up north get left alone more or yes okay it does because the romans like they spread up north but she is yorkshire so she's the last vestiges at this time of like roman power and they trust her to keep the further north people in line and not come down and bother anybody and she trusts them to keep 
all of the other tribes and kingdoms in the area who might try to fight her terrified <laughs> and this is that's you know that's how the romans worked and so you have zenobia is another woman who's in the book who is much later in the third century ad she took advantage of the third century crisis and the fact that there's like 17 people claiming to be emperor and they're all fighting one another to she's a syrian woman she's a kind of syrian elite woman and she rises up gathers an army takes over the entirety of syria all the way through into egypt she takes chunks of egypt she goes all the way through into turkey um, and rules it as her own little kingdom for <laughs> for some time and just kicks out all the romans and destroys all these roman legions eventually a strong roman emperor takes it all back but she does demonstrate that there is feeling for kicking the romans out even syria has been part of the empire for hundreds of years by this point but still they, they're not mad keen on having the romans there who else have we got? I've, at the moment i've been writing about lucretia and tullia who are right at the beginning of the empire and are the archetypal roman virgin whore so lucretia is she's sort of the idealized Roman Matrona um, and the story goes that her husband is out at war with the king's son and they're having an argument about who has the best wife and so they decide to ride back to Rome and secretly surprise their wives and see what they're doing and the king's son's wife is having drinks with her friends whereas Lucretia is <laughs> weaving in the dark and crying about how much she misses her husband <laughs> I'm not even married and I do that. I just, <laughs> yeah. you know, just so talk about, you know, people that I'm missing. Crying all the, the time. Dark. Yeah. Whenever my husband is out of the house, all I do is weep <laughs> and talk about how much I miss him. But yeah, so, this, you know, she's weaving wool, which is this archetypally Roman virtuous activity because it's horrible. So it's just, it's a really tedious and time consuming task. Yeah. So yeah, it's considered to be very good indeed. So this incites the king's son who's called Sextus Tarquinius so much that he almost can't bear that she is so virtuous so he tries to seduce her and when she won't be seduced because her honour is so important to her as a, a, a chaste wife um, he rapes her and specifically he tells her that if she if she will submit to him, then she will only be raped. But if she doesn't, then he will kill her and then he will kill an enslaved person and he will put them together and tell everybody that he caught her committing adultery. And that will besmirch her honour. And so she submits. Then he goes off and the next day she calls her dad and her husband and says, this is what's happened. I refuse to live and be a dishonoured woman. Basically, he's taken my honour and I can't live like that. What you do to him is up to you, but I won't be a symbol for dishonour and living a dishonourable life. And then she kills herself. And this leads her husband and her father and a guy called Brutus, who's there for no good reason, to rise up and overthrow the Roman kings and install the Republic. And that is how Rome ends its monarchy and how it gets its loved Republic, their greatest achievement. You can already see the like parallels with Boudicca there. <laughs> um, but Tullia is Sextus's, she's his mother, and she gets her husband into power by sleeping with him, even though he's married to her sister, killing both her sister 
and her husband and then persuading him to overthrow the king who is her father killing her father and then riding over his body so she is an adulterous whore who is her family on a very large scale betrayed her family on a very large scale, betrayed the Roman state on a very large scale, who is far too interested in politics because she has all of these speeches about persuading her husband to do all of this stuff, um, and is far too public a woman and then commits this final act of like religious impiety by defiling his body. And so she's like the anti. <laughs> so these 21 women that you've chosen are in every shape, form, different. Yeah. They're just women with stories. Yeah, and so and I've got um, we're business women from um, Pompeii and um, freed women sex workers and um, yeah, all kinds of women who do all kinds of things. I can't wait to read it. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> I mean, how many films can you get? It's twenty-one films in that. There's twenty. Ideally, twenty-one. Or yeah. <laughs> a twenty-one part series anthology series. Let's do that. Yes. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, you know, that's, I think that's a really good place to stop because I think that just shows you that um, we're all about uh, telling people's stories, but not necessarily tying them up in any kind of bow, letting everyone decide yeah. what they think of them, right? Pretty much, yeah. What are the, just quickly though, what are the sources for um, Lucretia then? Because if, if you're saying that there's quite a story that has a message. Oh, yeah. Who, there, is it again told from the perspective of that? Yeah, so she is like a foundational part of how Romans told their history. So in every history of Rome that they wrote, it well, it begins with Romulus and Remus, but Lucretia is the pivotal point at which the monarchy ends and the uh, Republic starts, which is like, you can't skip that part of history. So she's in Livy, which is like the monumental history of Rome, which is written under Augustus. Um, she's in... All of these poems um, that are written, so Ovid tells has a really great version in his um, Fasti, which is like the uh, an invented calendar of making up explanatory stories for every Roman festival, because they've got loads of festivals, they don't really know where they come from, so he just attaches a story to all of them. It's very charming. Romans, in much the same way that, you know, there's a, Brit a, a history of Britain written every... 10 years the romans write a history of rome from the beginning and every single one of them has lucretia in it she is like a figure which is completely like you couldn't tell the history of britain without telling the history of queen elizabeth she's a pivotal character oh, fantastic well thank you very much emma for being on our podcast and we look forward to hearing yeah about this new book everyone should check out your website which is emmasouthern.com. Yes. For all the links that they might need and all to keep up with uh, your news and what's going on in your world. Yes, you can find links there to my podcast, which is History is Sexy, and all of the books that I have written so far, which are all about... I have a lot of horrible women in them. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, or you can follow me on Twitter at, at Nuclear Teeth, and that's where things mostly go. History is sexy, as far exactly. as I'm concerned. It is. It's sexy and fun and exciting just and sometimes horrible and sometimes hilarious, like people. Just like us, yeah. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure.